Pastor Mike Favares with Focal Point Ministries. I trust that the following recorded sermon will be a benefit and a challenge to your Christian walk. For more information about Focal Point Ministries, log on to our website at focalpointministries.org, focalpointministries.org, or call us toll-free at 888-320-5885. All right, gang, I cannot believe that it is December. We've made it to December. And if all goes well tonight, we might even finish the whole New Testament. Wouldn't that be good? You'd hate, you'd hate to be, like, not quite to the end of the book. So let's do our best. We'll get right into it. We got our chart. You know our chart. We've looked at Paul's epistles here on the left-hand side. We looked at the early epistles, Galatians through Second Thess, the major epistles of Paul, which really is an irrelevant phrase. It just regards the length, the prison epistles when he's in prison, which is very telling. You need to read those in light of that. The pastoral epistles where he writes to the pastor of Ephesus and the pastor of the island of Crete. He's out setting up pastors in various places on the island. Then we've got the book of James, the general epistle of James, which we started with. We took these in chronological order, as you remember. And then Hebrews, 1st, 2nd Peter, Jude, just in terms of chronology. 1st John, and I think I revised that date, did I not? Last week we were here. And then 2nd uh, John, 3rd John, and the book of Revelation, we'll try to cover all tonight. The general epistles are general because, you remember, they're generally, with most, in most cases, we'll see tonight, 3rd John is an exception to that, but they are uh, generally addressed. And then the book of Revelation prophecy. So let's jump right into 2nd John, since that's where we were. You're building your data chart. Some of you like that, you accountant analytical types. We got the length of the book, one chapter, 13 verses, and 445 words in the Greek New Testament. And that is the length. You should always remember that when we're taking the length of these books, you can't count these words in English because any given passage might can think of several texts. You can have three words in Greek, may translate five words in English in one translation, eight words, nine words. It depends on the translation. So we always stick with the original language to count these words. All right. The author of 2 John is identified. Remember, 1 John, we said there's no identification, no internal identification, although from the very early days of the church, everyone said this is John the Apostle that wrote it. The style is matching in the Gospel of John, so we settled on that without a lot of debate. We looked at a few, uh, perhaps, counter-arguments to that, but we didn't spend much time with that. Neither will I today. He identifies himself as the elder, the elder to the elect lady and her children, and the theory is here that he's not speaking of himself, the Greek word presbyteros, not as one who's in the office of elder, although he is. Peter says, as a fellow elder, I appeal to you elders. You remember in First Peter 5, but in this passage, probably his advanced age, which is quite unique, and he's getting old. He's in his 90s at least, thereabouts, late 80s, and so he speaks of himself likely in terms of being older. That's the idea, an aging apostle. And it's one of the first times we get him identifying himself with even a label in his, in his letters. To so the lady and her children, we'll look at the recipients in a minute. John didn't generally identify himself directly. I think we said that last time we were looking at First John. The early church, pretty much a uniformed identification that this is John the apostle, the son of Zebedee, as you remember from the Gospels. Uh, the style is like John's other letters, even some of the same phrases and vocabulary. Even just read it through real quickly, you'll see, oh, this sounds a lot like some of the things that he uh, commentated on in, in the Gospel of John and also what we read in 1 John. Both 2nd and 3rd John seem to reflect a lot of that. So uh, we're clearly without all the debate that seems unnecessary going to identify the author as John the Apostle, son of Zebedee. Easy. 
the date, likely similar to the time frame of 1 John, and I think we dated it that way on your chart, likely from Ephesus, and that's where John had set up camp, and we dealt with a little bit of that. I referenced a book after the Apostles where you can get more on why that fits into the chronology as well as the extra-biblical history. We'll rough and dirty this book around 90 AD or AD 90 to be formal and accurate in terms of designating A.D. before the number as opposed to the number and then B.C. D. Recipients. The recipients are stated in this book, and here's how it's stated. We already got a phrase here as we looked at the author, to the elect lady, which is a strange way to put it. The elect lady and her children. Now, here's something that should make, at least give you a hint. And again, I, I say this often in English. We don't have second person distinction between plural and singular pronouns, unless you're in the South and they say you as singular and y'all as plural. And so you don't see that in the English translation of the Greek New Testament, that's hard. Although if you are on Logos, by the way, and don't get me off on bunny trails like this, but it's easy for you to identify uh, and, and to tell your English text to underline, for instance, that's what I do on my Logos in the highlighted markups where you can tell it what I want is every time I see a second person pronoun in English, I want it underlined if it's plural. I don't want it underlined if it's singular. You can make it a different color. You can put it in brackets. You can star it. You can decide, but you need to click around on your Logos Bible software because things like that are very helpful. And what you'd find in 2 John is that when you start talking about the yous in this book, it's plural. So when you say to the elect lady and you speak to, to her in terms of what's going on in this passage, you recognize that we're talking really not just about uh, an individual person and some little children that she's nursing or something like that. We're talking about a church. We're talking about a church likely and her children are its congregants. It's kind of a flowery way to put it. Uh, but he speaks of his love for this church, whom I love and in the truth, and not only I, but also all that know the truth. It's a good church, he's saying. We like it. We don't know what the church is, but it's likely a church in its members. And this metaphor continues to the end of the book, and I'll show you here in verse 13. Second John verse 13 says, the children of your elect sister greet you. So now he's sending a greeting from Ephesus, and he's speaking of the church that he's writing from and saying, uh, the children of your elect sister. Your sister church here is greeting you, and we're talking about the congregants. The church is the inanimate, if you will, depiction of a congregation and the people in it are described as children. So that's the metaphor in the book. Uh, We don't know a lot about who it is that John is writing to, but you will see as we look at the details that it applies to a lot of churches. All right, the purpose of the church is a lot the same as 1 John, although there's different recipients. He's writing to someone different here, and there's a lot of warning, a lot, it's a very short book, against the false teachers, which I think is a good reminder for us that we need to be cognizant and vigilant about false teaching. And we'll talk a little bit about that when we get to the book of Revelation tonight. Simplified outline, and of course, these are oversimplified outlines. Please know that. The first six verses, walk in the truth. Verses 7 through 13, which is the rest of the book, watch out for false doctrine. Couldn't be any simpler than that, your two-point outline. Walk in the truth, which of course is a metaphor, peripateo, that Greek word to talk about your conversation of life or the way you live your life, the manner of your life. You should do it in accordance with the biblical revealed truth of God's word. You ought to make sure that you're not falling to false doctrine because it always has lasting ramifications in your behavior and life. Walk in the truth, watch out for false doctrine. There's the book split in half. Favorite things. Very interesting statement in verse eight, and I think it's helpful. 
in a lot of ways. And I think I dealt with this last week, at least in mentioning that I'll speak sometimes, not at my own church, of course, I love my own church more than any other church. But if they're not well taught on the doctrine of biblical rewards, they just don't even understand this idea that I'm going to be evaluated at this thing called the Bema Seat and that there's something at stake in terms of loss of reward, which is exactly what 1 Corinthians chapter 3 says, that we will be evaluated and there will be some that suffer loss. We're not talking about purgatory. We're talking about the idea of a full reward. Look at how it's put here in verse number 8 of Second John. Watch yourselves. We're dealing here with making sure we walk in the truth and don't fall to false doctrine so that you may not lose what we've worked for and you may win a full reward. And I'll hit this again when we get to the book of Revelation. But the idea of this really false doctrine in our day, that there's nothing at stake in your sanctification. When it comes down to it, God loves you. He's forgiven you. It's no big deal. All of us get straight A's before God. So there's there's nothing really at stake. And that's throughout the New Testament reminding us there's a lot at stake. And there will be many people that suffer loss. Doesn't mean you're going to be sitting there in some agonizing state for all of eternity. And we'll be in eternity without all of the problems of envy and jealousy and all the things that may make us in our lives covetous of people that have more than us. But some people in the new Jerusalem are going to have more than you. And they'll do that and and store up treasure for themselves based on their Christian life. And here's one thing here in this book reminding us of that. Get your full reward. Live your life accordance to the truth that God has revealed in his word and stay clear of false doctrine. Because if you don't, you're going to lose your full reward. We're working to make sure, John says, that we teach you and train you so you get your full reward. I just like that idea and I like the phraseology there because that is unique in the New Testament, your full reward. Number two, clarity about sharing in the sins of others. Now, this can be taken to an extreme and it's often abused and we'll talk about that, but let me just state it by reading the passage for you. Verses 10 and 11 of Second John. If anyone comes to you uh, and does not bring this teaching, so now we're concerned about the false teachers, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. Forever greets him, here's the concern now, takes part in his wicked works. And what's the wicked works? He's teaching false doctrine. So the idea of someone allowing them to stay with them. And that was the idea that you would have throughout the ancient church, particularly as these letters were circulating and people were coming and people were coming and teaching and they were doing things so often as traveling pastors, if you will, and they should be evaluated and you shouldn't have them staying with you. Certainly shouldn't have them addressing the church if they are not biblically sound. And he says, you are now taking part in his wickedness. You're complicit in somehow having his teaching go further than it would if you had said, which is a very mean thing to do. Certainly in our day, everyone wants to be nice, but godliness does not mean being nice. We'd like to be kind if we can, but we're not always nice when it comes to things that are wrong. And if I say to someone, you have false doctrine here, I hope you would say, certainly don't let him come preach from the platform of Compass Bible Church. Well, I don't even want to take someone and do something kind to aid them on their way in false teaching. And in this case, which this was the norm, we didn't have hotels on every uh, street corner. You shouldn't even and take someone into your home as a false teacher. And I say this can be taken to an extreme because there are several people in our day that are still teaching this kind of, and I'm all for it, in terms of separation from the world. We want to be separate from sin. We'd like to live a life that is distinct. But for them, everyone wants to join hands and say, you can believe differently than me. It's no big deal. Well, several little things, of course. The secondary issues is fine. But when it comes to the issues of truth and the doctrine of the gospel, the doctrine of Christ, the doctrine of God, we need to be in agreement. And if we can't be in agreement about the essential of the faith, we need to break fellowship with each other, and we shouldn't partake in their sins by being the kinds that 
help them, aid them, give to them. That's why everything that you do in terms of supporting people that are engaged in ministry ought to be very carefully evaluated. You need to vet these ministries. You need to make sure that even as you give kind greetings to people that come to your door, bringing false doctrine, I'm not saying you need to be rude and crude. Sometimes I am, but I'm saying, I'm not saying, I'm not suggesting you do that every time. I have often driven up to them in my neighborhood as they're walking through my neighborhood. And I've said, get out of my neighborhood. I've said that. Um, And they're really trained to be nice people, so they don't know how to respond to that. But often I do say, I say, get out of my neighborhood. I don't, I don't want you going door to door in my neighborhood. And sometimes I'll pull up and I'll say, I got this neighborhood. I'll, I got it. I got it covered. So you can just move on to the next neighborhood. So I want to understand that the Bible takes seriously me being complicit in someone's false teaching. It can be abused. I understand that. All right, number three, the priority of face-to-face. John ends this, not only Second John, but Third John with the same phrase. And here it is. And I'll just use this in Second John because they're identical. But he says, though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face-to-face so that our joy may be complete. Now, again, we're reading the New Testament, which is a form of communication that is important and it's critical. Not only is it sometimes even better than face-to-face because it makes a record, it, it, it uh, solidifies, it puts in print, it codifies, if you will, uh, propositional truths. And we love that because we can study it and we can read it. But the priority of being with God's people face-to-face is obviously here prioritized. And that's why, though we stream this, people are streaming, hello, people in your computers, that's a great thing, but the priority is you being face-to-face. We need to, we need to get people here. We need to be in, in fellowship with each other. We shouldn't be watching television to try and get our church or streaming video teaching from our church and pretending that's fellowship. It's not. It's not what we need. We need face-to-face interaction and interface pardon the pun. But the idea here is, John says, because I know it's better. It's better. Our joy can be full. Now, I'm not downplaying writing, and and I'm all for texting or writing letters and emails and all of that. And I'm even for streaming. We wouldn't provide streaming if we didn't think that was helpful in some way. But we certainly prefer attending, and rightly so, prioritize attending over streaming, meetings over texting, and connecting face-to-face. I just think that's a helpful reminder. If you're on the fence about, do I do it face-to-face? Do I do it in writing? Do it face-to-face. It's always preferred. And I get that priority through the example here, and I know it'll always be better for us in many ways. Second John, that is a world record. We covered a book really, really fast. Third John, shortest book in the New Testament, by the way, as you'll see if you're keeping track. 15 verses, which again, it doesn't matter. Again, long verses or short verses, but 219 words in the Greek New Testament. And we compare that to Second John, which we just said was what? 2, 245, okay? Philemon, by the way, is the third. And if you're keeping track, the fourth shortest book in the Bible is not a New Testament book. It's the Old Testament book of uh, Obadiah. And while it's not always fair to compare Greek to Hebrew, because sometimes there's an economy of words in Hebrew that there's not in Greek, nevertheless, that's got 440 words in Hebrew, and then we're on to Jude, if you want to know that stuff. So third John's the shortest, second John, Philemon, Obadiah, and Jude at 461. Author. Again, we have it stated as the elder, third John 1, to the elder. Now we're not talking to the lady and her children. We're talking to the beloved Gaius, who, whom, whom I love in the truth. The early church has made no bones about the fact that this is John the apostle. Style is just like the others. Matter of fact, you can find phrases that are lifted from 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, identical. So without going into any kinds of unnecessary debates, which I think are all unnecessary, you're going to come to this conclusion anyway. John the Apostle, son of Zebedee, is the author of 3 John, the shortest book in the Bible by word count. Date, similar time frame to 2 John. 
I mean, a lot has been written on this, but it's a lot of, we don't have a lot of firm information other than to say John is still in Ephesus, which will make a difference as we think through the date of Revelation. It's roughly 90 AD or AD 90. Third John, recipient. It is stated, and I just read it. Third John 1, Gaius, whom I love in the truth. Gaius, a very common name in the New Testament or in the Latin world and in the ancient world, the first century world, the Roman world. There are four of them in the Bible. One we meet in Acts 19, a different one in Acts 20 from a different city. And then we see one discussed in Romans and 1 Corinthians. And then we have this one. We believe they're different. The time frames are different. The ge- geography is different. So at least we assume it is in this case. But we can pretty confidently say we got four different Gaiuses. This one, obviously the recipient of third John, a friend of John, the apostle. He's part of the church to which John is writing. In verse number nine, we get that sense that he's named as a part of the church, although it is a bit confusing in that he's pointing out things about Diotrephes and Demetrius, which in the book you'd think, well, wouldn't he know that? Nevertheless, we've got to remember there's always a dual audience that God has in mind in writing these books. So though Gaius is named as the recipient, much like we saw in other books of the New Testament, clearly there's an emphasis and an interest in the whole church taking all of that in. As I said with Philemon, remember Philemon is very specific about Onesimus, the runaway slave, but he's clearly talking to the whole congregation and making that message clear to everyone as we saw throughout the book. So it's the same here. Gaius is in view, and yet some of the things that are said, particularly about Diotrephes and Demetrius, are to be known among the church. And so we're assuming that, that that's the intention. The purpose of the book, simple to summarize, I suppose, but I mean, it's such a, such a short book. It actually, and what's interesting about this book, you see these uh, pictures of the papyrus that I throw up. A lot of the ones that I pictured here were from John Ryland's collection, but uh, these ancient papyrus you see the page and you think, oh, what is that? And I said, well, that's, that's half of John 17 or whatever. The cool thing about 3 John is it fits, you can fit the entire epistle on one papyrus leaf that is smashed together. It is, it's an encouragement and warning. And of course, at the end, a personal plan. And you can read the book, even as I'm talking right now, it's so short. He's going to give them some information about where he's going, and he's trying to encourage Gaius about these guys, as we'll see here in the short, not encourage them, warn them and encourage them. Based on this short outline, we'll see that. Simplified outline. Yay, Gaius, for eight, for eight verses, and then boo, Diotrephes, and then yay, Demetrius. So we praise Gaius. I mean, I could have used other words, right? He commends them, or the commendation of, but it's all pro. Gaius, you're great. Here's all the reasons why. Diotrephes is bad. You need to avoid him, be warned of diatrophies. And then Demetrius, a good guy, affirm him. Uh, he may be the one actually that's couriering this letter. He may be the messenger that's bringing the letter to Gaius. But nevertheless, Paul affirms him and says, everyone knows he's a good guy. So a commendation for Demetrius. See, but commendation is not as fun to write as the word yay. G, favorite things. I love this, an example of intuitive prayers. This always strikes me when I read this, particularly when I'm trying to be a super spiritual guy and trying to pray super spiritual prayers. And then I'm hit with this verse in in verse two of third John. And it's helpful for me to bring me back to where, come on, Mike, I mean, be a normal person. And I wrote this in the book that I wrote on suffering, Lifelines for Tough Times. And I had a whole section there trying to kind of backtrack from where I was going. And that is that, of course, we want to pray for God to be glorified in our suffering. Of course, we pray that, uh, you know, we would accept the sovereignty of God in our difficulties. And all of that is true. It doesn't exclude intuitive prayers, which is what I think I called it in my book on suffering. So I called it that because look at how he prays here. 
He says, beloved, I pray, speaking to Gaius now, that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health. That's just a sentence I just wouldn't expect to find among the super spiritual people. And I know maybe you think, well, of course, but I'm thinking, you know, that's the kind of thing you're above all that temporal concern. But he says, as it goes well with your soul. But he goes, no, I pray that you are in good health. That's a good thing. And it's a good thing to pray. And sometimes when I'm praying for things that seem so intuitive, and by that, I mean, it just feels like this is the right thing to pray. Uh, I mean, think about all the situations I'm in going to hospital beds or whatever, or people that are shut in or in difficult situations. And I want to help them understand the sovereignty of God and all of this. But you know what? I should start with the intuitive prayer that I should never be over and neither should you. And that is, I pray that this would be better, that you would get better, that this would be good. And so to pray for those intuitive prayers, I think there's affirmation in this. Some of you are looking at me like you're not following what I'm saying, but do you understand what I'm saying? Sometimes you cannot pray for things that seem obvious because you think they're too immature. It's helpful to me. Number two, uh, reason to be really joyful. And I know this has always struck. I mean, you can't read third John and, and not stop and pause at this verse, verse four. I have no greater joy, no greater joy. And again, that may be the hyperbolist. You may be rejoicing in your salvation or whatever. But the point is, as a person that loves people, there's no greater joy I have than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Not that they're making lots of money. Not that they got a great vacation. Not that they got the world's applause. Not that they have a great family life. Not that they're in good health even to kind of, you know, go beyond the intuitive prayer that, it start, that starts this book. But they're, they're walking in the truth. I'd much rather learn that someone is doing the right thing, the biblical thing, and having hard times than someone that's having good times and not walking in the truth. And so many people, they look at their kids, for instance, they're going off to a great college, they're getting really educated. Well, they're not walking with the Lord, they're not going to church. I know all that. But, you know, isn't it great that they're excelling in life and they got a great job offer at a big tin accounting firm or whatever? It's like, that doesn't really matter. The greatest joy is that someone is godly, whether they bombed out of college or whether they are sickly or whatever. What we want is them to be biblical. That's all that matters. All the other stuff is secondary, which if that seems contradictory to what I just said, I'm still wanting to learn to pray intuitive prayers. I'd like people to to, to do well. I'd like them to be in good health. But what's most important, as this verse says, the very next verse, is that we walk in the truth. Number three, helpful, forthright assessments. Now, we've got to be careful with this one, too. But one of my favorite things about this, it reminds me so much of Nehemiah, the book of Nehemiah, because there are some statements that seem just so, to use a nice word, forthright. They're just, bam, here, here it is. And sometimes you need that. And apparently the folks that were going to be surrounding Gaius and receiving this message, in, including Gaius, needed real clear depictions and commentary regarding Diotrephes. And here's how it goes. But Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, even that, I mean, there's nothing subtle about that. I mean, that's just, a, just an x-ray of this guy's motive. He doesn't acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he's doing. I love this now. Talking wicked nonsense against us. And again, it reflects Nehemiah just saying, this is absolute absurdity. You're just making things up in your mind. I think sometimes to be very, very forthright when it's helpful in describing a situation, I find far too much niceties, platitudes, trying to carefully couch what I'm saying. And, and I just, sometimes you just need a straight forthright assessment. And we talk about that, for instance, we discipline our children when they're little. We want a forthright rebuke as to the problem. And sometimes when we're dealing with issues in our small group or adults, sometimes you just need a forthright, no-nonsense assessment. Pardon the pun in this case that he's talking wicked nonsense. And he just likes to put himself first. And I know this can go too far as well. But I think sometimes that's super-duper helpful. Now, what I want to spend most of my time on tonight is the book of Revelation. So let's do that. Length of the book, 22 chapters, 404 verses, and 9,852 words. 22 chapters, 404 verses, 9852 words in the Greek New Testament. 
This is a long, rather long New Testament book, obviously, looking like the Gospels in terms of its length. Okay? The author. This is the only book that John writes in the New Testament that he states, he gives his name. And it's very short, but he says John to the seven churches, which really helps, particularly when we look at him encountering the glorified, resurrected Christ. It's someone that knew Jesus and called himself in his gospel, the one whom Jesus loved, the one, as he describes in the upper room, that's in this reclining table, as they often did in the ancient world. And he's the one who's leaning up against Christ. I mean, he's a good friend of Jesus and was one of the closest in the inner circle. You had the 70, you had the 12, you had the three, Peter, James, and John. And John has always been a part of that inner circle. So John describes himself here, and to remember who it is, particularly when he encounters Christ, is helpful. So we're talking about John the Apostle, the son of Zebedee, and that makes three, four, five books that are written by the Apostle John. Now, some people say, I don't think it's John, because there's all this weird vocabulary, and it's a completely different style. All I would say is this. This is a different genre. French word, we get the word genre. It's transliterated from French, which we get the word gender from in our language. Finding this biblically, you have, there's people. That's what, that's the ontological category, people. And then we have two kinds of people, kinds of people. Two, I know Facebook doesn't believe this anymore. Our world doesn't believe this, but there's only two genders. There's two types of human beings. And so that is the way we look at literature. And we have several kinds of genres in literature. I mean, we can break it down really into four basic kinds. There's several kinds, but let's talk about narrative. There's narrative genres like the Gospels and the book of Acts. And narrative is, this is what happened. If you want a phrase for narrative, that's what we're talking about. Here's what happened. Then this happened. And then this happened. And then this happened. That's, narr- that's a narrative genre. It's a, it's a running history of what happens. Though it may be told in a, in a way that is uh, you know, strategic and rhetorical, that's a, a narrative genre. There's a parabolic genre. And, and that is where you're comparing things. This is like that. And within narrative books like the Gospels, I'm not saying the whole book is one genre, but I am saying that in that book, as a basic genre of telling a narrative about Christ and his life and the apostles, you've got things like parables within it. And some complete sections of scripture are parabolic. And by that, I mean par- parabolic. There's a good Greek word to define. Para, alongside of, balo, to throw. Here is something thrown alongside the thing I'm trying to communicate, but it illustrates it. There's something uh, analogous. There's something that's going to connect the things that I'm saying to you with that. And, you know, like a sower went out to sow and the seed fell upon the four soils. And then Jesus defines what it is. Sometimes we don't even have the definition of what it is in a parable in the story. You know, a seed and grows up. And all we know is that the seed is like the kingdom or the kingdom of God is like this. So narrative, this is what happened. Parabolic, this is like that. Then you have didactic genre. A didactic genre is a, is a teaching genre. It's all filled with, with imperative verbs. It's like, you should do this and you should do that. And so many of Paul's epistles are that way. That, by the way, is why it's, an easy, it's the easiest to preach. It's not, nothing's easy to preach, but if you're going to start to learn to preach, you should start in didactic sections of the Bible where Paul is instructing uh, the, the, the Colossians, for instance, and you can take those things and say, okay, I can learn to do the kind of thing that's going on there. It's harder to preach narrative. It's harder to preach parabolic sections. Easier to preach at least in theory, easier to preach didactic section. Didactic, by the way, from the Greek word didaskalos, to teach. That's what it means, to teach. Fourthly, now we're in this, apocalyptic literature. This is a unique genre. It's the only book in the New Testament that is fully apocalyptic. I shouldn't say fully. It's not all apocalyptic, but a big chunk of this from chapter 4 through chapter 22 is all apocalyptic. Apocalyptic, and we'll see this in a minute, it derives its name from the title of this book. Apocalyptic. Apocalyptic, and I will get to the name of the book in a minute, which doesn't help us in defining the genre. It is, and here's how I like to define it, this is what I saw. So narrative, 
this is what happened, parabolic, this is like that, didactic scripture, you should do this, and then apocalyptic literature, I saw this. This is what I saw. When you look at literature that's like that, and we have several books in the Old Testament that are like that. Think of Ezekiel, for instance. He's just explaining what he saw. And the way he explains it seems so inadequate because it never really defines for me what I want to know. When the beast stands on one foot on the shore and one foot in the sea in the book of Revelation, we're like, well, what does that mean? Well, I don't know, but I know what it means. It means that's what John saw. But we don't always have the satisfaction of knowing what it means. So this is so filled with all of this kind of apocalyptic literature. So when you have John writing narrative in the Gospels, you have John writing didactic genre in his epistles, and then you now finally get to this thing that is apocalyptic. It's a completely different ballgame. God gives him this vision, starting in chapter 4, really starting in chapter 1, but this apocalyptic section of literature, and he's just saying, I saw this, and then I saw this, and then I saw this. And he's trying his best to describe these things. And all those things become, as it says in the beginning of the book, a prophetic picture of what's coming. But it's very different. So when someone throws a flag on the play and says, I don't think John wrote this because it doesn't look like the Gospel of John, I'm just saying it's a completely different genre. What does that mean? It's a completely different kind of literature, not the same kind of literature. I mean, if you read a book that I, if you read a book that I wrote, if I read, I've written didactic books, I've yet to write a, a fiction of any kind, I've, I haven't written any poetry. So you would say, well, it's a completely different way of writing. And so it is with John. So most of the objections for that, that John didn't write this, come from the, the distinction. And yet, if you look for stylistic connections, you'll find them. Lots of stylistic connections. In other words, the way that John describes Jesus, for instance, as the word of God. We don't have that elsewhere. That's unique to to John's discussion. And one really telling section is Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, where he quotes that passage in the Gospels and in the book of Revelation. And he uses the exact same phrase and connection to the Greek Septuagint. Anyway, that's just one of the unique things. There's just an exact kind of agreement in, in that quotation, as well as some themes that run parallel, although it's a different kind of genre. Just like if I wrote some poetry book, and then you looked at didactic material that I wrote, and say, well, yeah, when certain things he talks about Christ, he talks about Christ in the same way. And yet, the rest of it's really different. The rhetorical devices are different. The symbolism is obviously completely different than what he's writing in another kind of book. That is, I think, helpful to see. The stylistic connections to the Gospel of John, but the unique genre which helps us explain the differences which make many people question the authorship, which we shouldn't. All right, when did this happen? This is a gigantic, significant question because there are several ways to look at this. Usually scholars try and divide the approach to Revelation into at least four, if not five categories. The two that are most significant for us, I suppose, in our subset of Christianity here is either preterism or futurism. Preterism or futurism. Preterism means past. That's what the word means. Futurism obviously means future. So this is a contrast of past and future. And the question is, what are you talking about? You're talking about our reference point from the modern church. We're looking back at this and asking the question, is this about past events or is this about future events from my reference point? So as I read the book of Revelation and I I pick it up and I start now in chapter 6 and I go to the end of the book, well, let's just take 6 through 19. Chapter 6 through 19, I'm done with the letters to to the seven churches. I'm done with the view in heaven in chapters 4 and 5. We'll get all this in a minute. And then I'm looking just at chapters 6 through 19. I'm asking the question, has this already happened or is it going to happen in the future? Preterism says it's already happened. And you're saying, wow, all that stuff happened. When did that happen? And people will say it happened in 70 AD after Nero's persecution 
that took place in the mid-60s, mid to late 60s, and then Titus comes in and destroys Jerusalem, and all of that emperor worship under Nero, that's what we see, there's this antichrist and this beast, and then you see the destruction of Jerusalem, which is all this devastation that we see in the book of Revelation, and all the destruction of Babylon and, and all of that, all of that's going on in 70 AD. Futurism says no. All of this is going on in the future. It hasn't happened yet. It's a futuristic book. Now, if you say all the beginning things in the book of of Revelation say, this is prophecy, this is future, this is what's going to happen. I got to show you the things that are going to take place. You know that when it's written, it's written about something that hasn't happened yet. If we're looking back on it now and saying it's already happened, and some, a huge group of people believe it happened in 70 AD, in the late 60s and 70s, then it has to be written before 70 AD. If it's written after that, then it can't be prophecy about the future. It has to be a futuristic book. Therefore, deciding when this book was written is critically important because so many of the people you know and respect and love as biblical scholars and teachers believe that everything in the book of Revelation from chapter 6 to 19 has already happened. And it happened in the first century and it happened in Jerusalem in 70 AD was the culmination of it all. Well, it can't be written then. If if they're right, it cannot be written after 70 AD. Because everything about the book is it's telling us when it was written that all of this is yet to come. Smile at me if you followed all that so far. That's critical. So we have to figure out when it's written. Preterism believes that 6 through 19 culminates in 70 AD, AD 70. And futurism is no, it's still yet future from our vantage point. It's going to happen, hasn't happened yet. Now there were many, many people. Most importantly, Irenaeus and several others. But starting with him, you get Origen, Clement of Alexandria, Eusebius, all the way to Jerome, if you want to go that far. They all said this took place at the end of Domitian's reign. Domitian ended his reign in 96, AD 96. So the earliest testimony to when the book of Revelation was written said put it under Domitian's reign, not under Nero's reign. If you're going to be a preterist, you've got to say this book was written during Nero's reign before Titus comes in and destroys Jerusalem. If it's written after that, your argument falls apart. And they will admit that. From R.C. Sproul on down, they will admit, if we're wrong about the date, we got a real problem interpreting this as something in the past, which most of our Reformed friends, that's what they do. They believe that. I'm not saying I'm not Reformed. I'm just saying that the all-millennialists, we can talk about that in a minute if we want to, they'll say it has to have already happened. The preterists, that's what we're talking about. A couple things, and we could go, there's many of them. I want to give you references and you can research this some more. But the decline of the seven churches certainly helps us understand a late date. Because what you know about the 60s, think back to everything we've studied. There's problems, but the church is relatively healthy. You've got Paul doing ministry, you've got the missionary journeys, you've got things happening, and you've got a lot of good things going on that have still given us relative good health, particularly during persecution. The church was strengthened. It was under persecution, but often what happens, there's strength of church. Well, these churches, as you know, the the first three chapters, chapters two and three, you have all this description of the seven churches, and so many of them have already faded into some kind of malaise. It certainly is helpful to see that later in the 90s, not in the 60s. That just fits and makes better sense. And since everyone says early on, this was under Domitian's reign, then this is post-70 AD. And therefore, all this great tribulation, as Jesus said, that the world has never seen and never will see again, it didn't happen in 70 AD if it's later. So the decline of the churches certainly speaks to a late date. One thing that often is quoted in the debate is the earthquake in Laodicea in 60, and some people put it in 61, but 60, 61, late 60, early 61, there was an earthquake in Laodicea that devastated the city. And there was a long, long period of reconstruction to build that city back. 
Well, you remember Revelation 3 in Laodicea. What does it say about Laodicea? I'm rich and wealthy and in need of nothing. They would not be talking that way in the 60s about Laodicea. I mean, that's a pretty strong historical point. And again, I'm just adding another log on the fire to, well, yeah, that's what everyone said. It was written during the, the reign of Domitian. At least the early church said that. Preterists have to say, Irenaeus, Clement of Alexander, they were all wrong. All these early church, they were, they were just got, they were mistaken. And they'd have to say, well, somehow the Laodicean church, it, it recovered and the historical sources we have and the decline of the seven churches, well, you know, churches can decline quickly, all that, fine. There's so much that can be said about this that I want to refer you to my friend's dissertation. His PhD dissertation was on this very thing. The defense of the Domitianic date of the book of Revelation. And it's funny because I had to text him today and I said, I can't find this online. Where in the world is this? It is by Mark Hitchcock. He wrote this for his dissertation and it is a thorough defense. I don't know. What did I, I wrote it down? 245 pages of doing nothing but trying to say, when was this book written? And uh, he answers all of the popular questions. He deals with this point by point, reference by reference. And if you want to look it up, you can find it. Here's what you need to do. Here's how I finally found it once I texted him and he helped me find it. If you type in, we'll go to this URL first, pre-trib.org, pre-trib.org. And then in the search box, type in date of revelation and it will bring up Mark's dissertation. And you can download it. It's free. It's a PDF. It'll put you to sleep. You start reading it tonight, 245 pages worth, but it is very thorough. And you say, I don't have time for that. I don't want all that, but I am interested in this and it's kind of interesting. Well, then I would say, here's, here's the cliff note version and also more fun to watch because it's a debate. If you go to YouTube and you type in Mark's name, Mark Hitchcock, that's how you spell it. Can you see all that? H-I-T-C-H-O-C, I'm sorry, H-I-T-C-H-C-O-C-K. And then Hank Hanegraaff, who most of you know was popularized by the Bible Answer Man program. They debated back in the day, I don't know when it was, 10 years ago maybe, on nothing but the, the date of revelation. Now Hank, the Bible Answer Man, when he used to be in, in my church and he was one of my congregants, I couldn't persuade him about the book of Revelation. So after he left our church, he went on to decide that he was going to be a preterist and therefore he had to try and argue for a late date I'm sorry, an early date of the book of Revelation. Well, he goes to a debate in Dallas and it's recorded. You can get it all for free on, on YouTube. Some of the, depends on which one you look at, the resolution's not that good. But to put it, I don't know, in my terms, I guess, he got his clock cleaned by, by Mark Hitchcock in this debate because shouldn't date shouldn't debate a guy on an issue he wrote his PhD dissertation on. And so if you want a lively debate between Hank, who clearly is articulate and smart and, and able to debate, with Mark, who's he's a good guy too and can debate, mild-mannered, but he's got the facts on his side. Just watch the debate because everything about how you interpret the book of Revelation, either as a preterist or a futurist, is going to really come down to when was the book of Revelation written. And I've made that case pretty strongly. You, you can see that. Watch the debate, or if you really want to get into it, read the dissertation. I believe this is a late date. I don't think there's any way around that. So you type those two names in, Mark Hitchcock, Hank Canegraaff, you'll come up with several versions of the debate. And the one I think in multiple parts is a better resolution, more fun to watch. The introductory material, and I just thought I'd pick a, a commentary that might help you through this, that certainly is going to defend late date for the book of Revelation, interacting with material that was written, and a lot of that was written, I think, in the 80s, that tried to popularize a uh, early date. I think Kenneth Gentry was the guy who wrote a book on it, but would be our, uh, a commentary by our friend, the late, our late friend, uh, Dr. Thomas, Robert Thomas. 
Robert Thomas wrote a book, a two-volume set on the book of Revelation. Moody Press published it, and he does have a lot of good introductory material, and he'll interact with a lot of the argument against a early date of the book of Revelation. So I'd recommend that. And I put Logos up because I really want to encourage you guys to use your Logos. Even if you just get up in the morning and after you read your DVR, just click around in your Logos. But if you want to get this which I think is great because if you see a word you don't understand, you double click on it, it'll define it. You, you know, mouse over the references. You'll be able to go to those passages. Just so many good things you need to do. You need to get into your logos, but you can buy it, although it's kind of expensive, $75. You say, I don't want to spend $75. Well, great. Then go to Amazon and you can get it on Kindle if you want electronically for 23 bucks, both volumes. If you want the hardback, it's $49.99, which means in our bookstore, it's $48.99. Very good just testing you, which I think we probably have some in our bookstore. I don't know if it's open tonight, but you can get the hard copy if you're, you want a tactile experience. And since I mentioned Mark and I was talking with him today, I thought, you know, he's got a very easy to read book and it doesn't, it has a section on the date, but it's a very cursory view of it. But if it's a fun book to read, if you just want to kind of get familiar with all the different things in the book of Revelation, it's called 101 Answers to Questions About the Book of Revelation that Mark wrote. I've had Mark preach here before. I don't know if you've been around. It's been years, but he's come out to preach for me before. I need to get him back out to preach again, but very sharp guy and has written a lot on, on the book of Revelation, obviously, part of his, his doctoral studies. Good enough. Some of you will take advantage of those resources or at least go to YouTube. If you don't get distracted by dancing chicken videos or whatever, you'll, you, can, you can find your way to something that will be edifying and scholarly and helpful for you. Okay. So I'm basically saying after all of that, and again, I know there's a lot of debate about it, but I don't think there's any way around it. Even if you just want to watch the debate or read some stuff, a late date. If Domitian Domitian dies in 96, AD 96, and this is, as as Irenaeus said, this is at the end of Domitian's reign. I'm going to put this at 95, and that's pretty much the standard evangelical, certainly uh, pre-mill and pre-trib dating of the book of Revelation. And I think there's plenty of substantiating material for that. The recipients. They're stated here in Revelation chapter 1, verse 4. John, again, it's the first time he identifies himself in his, one of his five books that he writes in the New Testament. To the seven churches that are in Asia, we call it Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, and they're toward the western coast, toward Greece. And later, he says, a few verses later, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, and I heard behind me, by the way, he says on the island of Patmos, which we skipped in this passage. Patmos is an island between Greece and, and Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, down south. I was, in, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Now, we're going to look at it. I said there were five different ways to view the book. Preterist and futurism, that's the major distinction. You need to remember that. There are some other views. Another way to read this, the historist way to read this. Some people look at the book of Revelation and they say this. The seven churches are seven historical periods of church history. So when you start with Ephesus, that was the early church. And then you go to Smyrna, we got the, not the early church, not the early, early church, but like the Nicene church. And then Pergamum and Smyrna, we get all the way to Laodicea and Laodicea is the, our church. It's our generation because everyone who has this view thinks that we're in the very end of this. So that they, they say that. And then they'll say the history's view that from that point on in chapter four and five, the heavenly view, all the way to the end of the book, I should say to chapter 19, the return of Christ, all of those things are also showing me the history of the church. These are the highlights of church history, the historist view. I said five, let's forget the modified futurist view. I'll give you the other one, the idealistic view. The other way to look at the book of Revelation is to say that everything in this book, and it's that's why I want to say it last because 
it takes all the teeth out of the book. It's just a, it's a kind of a spiritualistic, cosmic, poetic view of good and evil. It's just, it just helps me see that there's a battle going on between right and wrong. That's the ideal, idealistic view. So let me just leave you those four. Those are the four majors. The ones, again, you can see that I'm most concerned with is futurist and preterist, which we've dealt with. I'm a futurist. If you didn't get if all that, if you missed all that, I'm a futurist, late date for the book of Revelation. I'm not a preterist. There you go. And one of the things I might say about the, the historist view of the book of Revelation is certainly when it comes to the churches, because they take a lot of detail in trying to show the periods of church history and the epics of church history match the seven churches. I don't think that these were laid out for us in terms of church history. If you look at the map up here, I think this was laid out for us in terms of the road that you would go on from Patmos. There's Patmos. You see Patmos there? That island that John was on, exiled there, which by the way is another reason that this is a late date and I won't get into all that. But having him exiled at this point makes perfect sense in the 90s. It doesn't make sense in the 60s. And you take the road, which I didn't map out the road on this map, but you go from Ephesus, Smyrna, Thyatira, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and later see. That's the way you would travel. If you were going to come and say, I want to go from Ephesus and hit these churches, these major cities and these major churches, that's the direction that you would go. So I think these are laid out in geographic uh, sequence, not in chronological sequence. And then you can say, well, well, couldn't God have made those churches, put those churches in that situation and then just happen to also put them in, in geographic sequence? Well, sure, he could have. I, I, but I'm just, I think it's a stretch and very creative to try and connect the seven churches to all the epics of churches. And I have friends that believe this. I think my co-host on Tima believes that, but it's not my view. So, and certainly not the rest of the book. I think the rest of the book is either the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD or the rest of the book is something yet to come, something that's in the future. All right, so the recipients are not only the seven churches, but the world. Why do I say that? Because everything that's explained after chapter three, everything that's explained in detail from chapter six to 19 is about this. Because you've kept my word about patience and endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. And once you get those words, whole world and earth, then everything breaks loose and everything in the book from that point on is a description of what's going to happen to the whole world. And the point is, here it is to the world. Here's what's going to happen to the world. So the recipients, of course, immediately and in the literature of the book are the seven churches, but those seven churches, everybody in those seven churches is dead now. But clearly, this is a roadmap of what God, I believe, is going to do. I mean, there's no way around it. This is what's explained, the things that are coming on the whole world. And those are the terms, not just world, the whole world. That's the point, the entirety of the world. So in, in that sense, people in the world should pay attention to this book. It's written to them because it's written about stuff that's going to happen here. All right, purpose of the book. To describe the appearing of Christ. Now I can get to the title of the book. It's the only book in the New Testament that has a title in it. And the title is this, the beginning words of the book in the Greek New Testament. Uh, the apocalypsis of, of Christ, of Jesus Christ. We translate the word apocalypsis, transliterate it apocalypse, but the word is translated revelation. So that is where we get the word apocalypse. Sometimes in the old King James Version or old translations, you'll see the title of the book, the apocalypse of Jesus Christ, which in Greek is a genitive and it's somehow either connected to, let's give me some synonyms first. Apocalypse in Revelation means to disclose, to manifest, to unveil, to uncover. That's the idea. To reveal, obviously, Revelation to reveal. The revealing, the disclosing, the manifesting, the unveiling of the uncovering of Christ. Now, is that specifically of Christ? Of, what do you mean of Christ? Is it the uncovering of Christ himself? Well, yeah, that it is ultimately because he comes to the world. He's revealed. We don't see him now. Like the Bible says, though you don't see him now, you believe in him. Your faith becomes this precious commodity as I trust in Christ. First John 3, I'm going to see him one day. The revealing of Christ to where we see him with our eyes. 
That certainly is true, but it's more than that. It's the revelation of Christ in the sense that here is the stuff that Christ wants to, this is his, I hate to put it this way, I don't mean this blasphemy, it's his term paper. Here is his paper. He's revealing to you the plan. It's the revelation that belongs to Christ. He's giving it to you about the world. He's revealing this prophetic information to you. Either way works, and some people take it one way, the other way, both work because the book is full of the revealing of the things that Christ wants to tell us as we unfurl the scroll, as we'll talk about. But ultimately, it culminates in Christ coming and his feet touching the Mount of Olives in chapter 19, and Christ arrives. He's un- unveiled, uncovered, manifest, disclosed, apocalypse. So even that, when someone says something like, what's the apocalypse? You hear the helicopters flying low or something, the apocalypse. Just know what you're saying is the uncovering. And then you have to say, like baptism, of what? Baptizo to place into. I often say when we baptize people, you need to know what the object is. And, and so it is with the word apocalypse. People say apocalypse and you know what they mean. The end of the world is going to be on fire or whatever. And that's true because that's what's going on in this book. But you need to remember the word apocalypse needs an object. The revelation of what? Revelation of Christ. And here's how I put it as I was preaching recently. He's disclosing a series of events relating to his coming. And that kind of combines both of what I just said in one phrase. The revelation of Christ is him being revealed to the world, but it's also all the things related to his being revealed which is a bunch of bad stuff. As my pastor used to say, right, he's coming back, he's real mad. He's got a lot of bad things that are going to happen here from chapters 6 to 19. But as I put it recently in a sermon, and I kind of liked it, every now and then I'll like something I say, I saw, I just thought this was good in terms of how we see it in Scripture. Christ comes, he's revealed first to his church. As, he, as Paul says to the Thessalonians, he catches up his church, harpazo, he, he raptures them. That's where the word comes from, harpazo in Greek, rapsis from Latin, the Latin Vulgate, we take that transliterated rapture. He, he's revealed to his church. He comes and comes for his church, which, by the way, in the first three chapters of Revelation, we have the word ecclesia or church 19 times. You know how many times we have the, the word from chapters 4 to 19? Zero, none doesn't show up. We get it once then at the end of the book as he kind of reprises the fact that this is all being revealed to the church. But the church is not found, at least as a word, and I think that's one small point in favor of the fact that the church is not a part of what's going on in this, specifically chapters 6 through 14. Not to mention the verse I just read to you, Revelation chapter 3, verse 10. At least that one promise to the church, and I think it applies to all churches, because every one of those postcards to the churches, as I often call them, all of them can be applied to churches throughout church history. And he says, you keep my word, I'm going to keep you from the hour that's coming upon the whole world to try those on the earth. And I do think there's an exemption, and that certainly is taught to us in First and Second Thessalonians, not to mention some people see the parallel in chapter 4 where John is taken up into heaven to see these things. He's taken up. All right, Christ comes for his church in a taking up of his church, I believe. And certainly that's implied throughout, I think, the book. An argument from silence in in part. An argument, though, certainly clearly from the rest of Scripture. Then he comes in judgment. The meat of the book is him coming in judgment. He's coming and bad things are happening in chapters 6 through 19. And then he comes in triumph at the end. He comes at the Battle of Armageddon, and he comes riding on a white horse like a motocross rider with leathers and name on his thigh, and he's there in triumph as a, as a warrior. And he comes back in triumph to save and redeem Israel. So that's the way I put it in a sermon recently, and I thought those are the aspects or the stages of his, of his coming. Comes for his church, comes in judgment on the world. He comes then to redeem Israel in triumph to save them in chapter 13, to redeem them. Not with the redemptive work of Christ on the cross through his sacrifice, but the redemptive work of him coming to physically defend them. All right, is that helpful a little bit? All right, simplified outline. Again, super, super simple, oversimplified. Message for the churches. Of course, as I said, we got almost 20 references to the word itself, not to mention it's all about the churches, chapters one through three. 
I guess you could break off chapter one. It's an introduction, but nevertheless, one through three. Then we see a great tribulation. I'd call it the great tribulation, chapters four through 19. And we can hearken back to the Olivet Discourse when Jesus is on the Mount of Olives saying, there's going to be a tribulation coming upon the earth, such as there's never been from the beginning of time, nor shall there ever be. And I just want to know if Titus's destruction of Jerusalem is a greatest tribulation that ever happened on the whole earth or will ever happen again. And we got 2,000 years of atrocities. I'm thinking, I don't think that qualifies. And I think everything in the book of Revelation, though, with the whole world talk about all this universal things that are happening, I think that fits. And we have a great tribulation coming on the earth, and it's described in great detail, chapters 4 through 19. Chapter 20, we have this thousand-year period that's repeated six or seven times specifically with a number. Thousand years, thousand years, thousand years, thousand years, thousand years. Thousand years, another word for that, is millennium. We've got to figure out how does that fit. Now, if you want a lot on this, you can go back to the compass night when we did sorting out the end times is what we called it. And we talked about the millennium. You got three basic views. You got the view that I hold, which is the millennium is yet to come, which means a thousand year, literal thousand years is yet to come. It's in the future. We are now pre-millennial. We are before the millennium. Then there are the all-millennialists, the the Hank Hanegraaffs, the R.C. Sprouls, the Presbyterians. A lot of those guys, they believe that there's no millennium, at least not a literal millennium. A-millennial means no millennium, but it doesn't mean they don't believe in them that there is no millennium. They believe there's no literal millennium. There's no thousand-year millennium. Why? Because we've been 2,000 years now in what they think is the millennium. And that is Christ ruling and reigning in the church and in our hearts. Pre-millennials say, no, we're before that time, and it's not in our hearts It's not spiritual. It's real. He's on a throne leading in Jerusalem. That's coming. Then there's the post-millennialists, which we had recently. uh, Some some post-millennials come to the church and try and talk and and, and debate a little bit about that. Post-millennial means this. We are ushering in the millennium. We are really creating a kind of utopian society where Christianity is going to win. And we're on, the, we're on the path to victory here. And eventually we're going to have the world Christianized. And that's what our missions work is about. And we're going to do that. And that's why every one of you should be involved in, in, in politics and leadership. Because we are going to Christianize the world. And we're going to bring in the golden age of the millennium. And once that millennium is realized through the work of the church, then Christ will come back. So you've got a millennial. We're in the millennium now. It's just all spiritual. You've got the post-millennial. Everything's getting better. I don't mean to say that sarcastically, but there it is. And then the premillennials would say, no, the millennium is going to come. It's going to come literally. It's going to come when Christ comes back and sets it up. And even sequentially, after the great tribulation, chapters 4 through 19, there will be a millennium. So that's chapter 20. First, first half of chapter 20, I didn't put the verses. Second half of chapter 20 is the sentencing for the lost. You know it as the great white throne judgment. Great, huge. It encompasses everyone. Everyone's brought before God the Father in that text. That's how it's envisioned. White because it's pure, it's holy, it's righteous. It's a judgment because everyone is evaluated and not just evaluated, they're sentenced. There is a sentencing when the books are open. You got a book that has deeds in it. You got a book that is not described, but I assume it's the standard by which those deeds are judged. And yet another book that determines whether or not you should be in that line, and that's the book of life. So all these books are open and you're in the right line. If your name's not written, the Lamb's Book of Life. And then once you get there, you're going to have to deal with the distance between your deeds and your life and the book, the standard, the judge of everything, God's revealed word, which also is reflected and written, at least in part, in your conscience and in creation. And everyone's going to be judged. And they're going to be sentenced, not just judged. They're going to be sentenced. So it's a sentencing, I called it, for the lost. And then chapters 21 and 22, the eternal state the eternal state. Talk about the new Jerusalem. And while some scholars like to say, well, we're the new Jerusalem because it's called the bride of Christ. I understand that. It's an analogy. 
We are the bride of Christ as the people of God. Paul loved that image in the New Testament. John uses this here, or God does, as he reveals it to John, that the city that he's made for us is called the bride. The bride's coming to us, this city prepared for us, coming out of heaven like a bride adorned for her husband. So I don't believe that it's the church. I believe it's the city, the city that the people are going to dwell in. Now, I put this chart, and and I, I was reluctant to give it to you again, because if you were with us back in the day, I did this before, but I thought, okay, we're dealing with the book. Let's just do this really fast. Not too fast, but fast, fast. Just to map out chapters 4 through 22. Ready? Chapters 4 and 5, the scene in heaven. And I always segment those off, even as I've talked tonight, too fast, I'm sure, you, some of you will tell me. But I've talked tonight, and I always I say 4 through 19, or 4 through 22, and then I'll say, no, 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 I mean 6 through 19. Well, that's because 4 and 5 is the scene in heaven. Before we get all the information about what's coming, we get the scene in heaven. As I'll talk about in my favorite things, it's, it's bizarre, but it's the scene in heaven. Then you start these judgments. I believe this line, as I put it on your, on your worksheet in micro print, apparently, is this tribulation, which we're going to have through chapter 6 through 19. They're the seal judgments, and that's not the aquatic animal. We're talking about seals on a scroll. On a scroll, you roll it up. You roll it up. Let's just say you got a long scroll, and I roll it up three times, and I put a seal, a wax seal on it. Then I roll it up some more, and I put a wax seal on it. And I roll it up some more, and I put a wax seal. You can see where when I start to unfurl it, I get a few lines into it or a few paid, whatever you want to call it, a few inches into it, and then I got to break a seal so I can read the next part, and then I got to break a seal so I can read the next part. You get that picture? That's the breaking of the seals. And every time you break a seal, we get information about bad stuff that's going to happen. And it's never good, the seals. So those are the seal judgment. And how many are there? Seven. Now, there's always a question, are these sequential or do these, these happen contemporaneously at the same time? And the reason we think they're mostly sequential in terms of, as we'll see, and I'll lay them out, the seals and the bowls and the trumpets, it seems like the seventh one, the seventh seal, the seventh bowl, and the seventh trumpet, they seem to overlap. And so it may be in the end time series, I try to deal with this, I think, in, in more detail. Chapter seven is what I'm going to call the chapter about evangelism in the tribulation. It's where we get this reference to the 144,000 Jews who are now very special, 12,000 from each tribe, and they're going out bearing the name of Christ. They're special, they're different, they're unique, they're holy, and they're going out with a message to see people saved. And these 144,000 Jews, each from the 12, 12 tribes of Israel, very Jewish, rooted in Israeli history, all that, they're there doing evangelism in the tribulation, chapter 7. Then you get the trumpet judgments, two chapters on the trumpet judgments, which are also bad, a lot of bad stuff happening. And it seems that we're ramping up toward the end of the tribulation. And it all looks like, oh man, this is all going to be done. Well, then you get in chapter 10, a call to prophesy again. And we kind of get a, what we call a recapitulation, a retelling of the stuff that's going on during the, the tribulation. And so we start, which looks like it's the stuff near the end of the tribulation, the second half of the tribulation. Chapter 11, you get these two prophets, these two heroes, I called them who do a special ministry for God, and they're miraculously raised. And there's more on that. You can read the book, or even Hitchcock's book on any, just about every topic, 101 topics in that little book. It's a good, little, easy-to-read, concise book that'll tell you about these two prophets. Or you'd read the chapter and then read the book, because there's plenty of questions once you read it. Chapter 12, Israel and Satan. We have this picture of Israel and Satan's attempt to destroy Israel. Chapter 13, we have the Antichrist and the false prophet and a a description and a focus on the two of them and how they work together, a religious leader, political leader. Which, by the way, I got a letter from someone who complained that I put an X where the word Christ should be, and they thought I was trying to X out Christ, one of our streamers. X is the equivalent of the Greek letter chi. Matter of fact, most of the time when I 
put that down. I don't even think about it because it has been the shorthand throughout church history all the way back to the first century manuscripts or early second century manuscripts that we have as the abbreviation for the name of Christ. It's just a chi, an X. So anyway, I'm not, I'm not, I'm for Christ here. Have you gotten that over the years? I'm, I'm, I'm pro-Christian, especially Christ. So, but anyway, here at the Antichrist. Okay. Chapter 14. I call them exit interviews because it's an interesting description of things that have happened. We get back to the 144,000 now and we talk about the things that went on and the descriptions of them and other descriptions of things that happened during the tribulation. So seals come first, trumpets come next, and then we have a prophesy again and a kind of a recapitulation of some things during the tribulational period. Then at the very, it seems to be the very end, and it's all like birth pangs, as Jesus said, things kind of increase in intensity and frequency, and then we have the bold judgments. And again, some people say, well, the last part of chapter 6, the end of the seals, the last part of chapter 9, the end of the trumpets, and the last part of chapter 16 seem to all be identical. And that may be that somehow they overlap. But the point is, all these things that are described, both in the seal judgments, the trumpet judgment, and the bowl judgments, are all bad, and they're all going to happen, and they're all, unless you believe, you're a preterist, then you believe they already happened, which then takes a lot of creative connections to try and take all those things and find any comportment with those things and what happened in 70 AD. And there's a lot of books that try, but I think they don't succeed. So that's chapters 15 and 16. Chapter 17 and 18 go back to talk about the whole structure of things, the whole worldly scene and why it was so bad and what had happened and how it got to be that way and just the whole commentary on the terrible wickedness of the, of the world system. And some people are thinking, well, this is, and I hear people that don't, they're not futurists, they're not premillennial. They say, well, Babylon, this obviously refers to, to Rome. And I'm saying, even in my eschatology, fine. It, it does. I believe as Daniel laid out the, the kingdoms, we've got this, as we often call it, a revived Roman, Western, Latin, if you will, world power. And that's fine. I don't, that, doesn't, that doesn't shake my view at, at all. But anyway, it's labeled as the Babylons there, two Babylons. Chapter 19 then is the culmination of this all. Christ returns, physically returns. Now I believe he's come for his church at the beginning. He has come to the world in judgment. And now he's coming at the end of the judgments to come and save those redeemed, saved people. Many of them have been executed, martyred for their faith, but he comes back to save his people, which is primarily the focus and the spotlight at this point is on Israel. People are being saved from every tongue, tribe, and nation. I get that. I think a lot of the unreached people groups will be saved during this period of time, at least people from them, a representative of every tongue, tribe, and nation. But the focus is on Israel as we read the book of Revelation, starting with 144,000 Jews that all know their tribe's connection, or at least God knows their tribe's connection. Battle of Armageddon. Christ comes back in triumph. In chapter 20 are the two things I said, the millennium and the sentencing, or the kingdom and the lake of fire, as we describe people being rightly and justly judged for their sins. And then the last two chapters kind of can be marked off on their own as well. We get a description of the new Jerusalem, or the eternal state, as I put it on the outline, the eternal state. That's been helpful for me, as I did this years ago and kind of mapped out the book of Revelation. I hope it's helpful for you in some way. As you have someone quote a passage from a part of the book of Revelation, and you, you can use this chart and go and find it and think, okay, at least where does Pastor Mike or people like Pastor Mike think these things are happening on the timeline? All right, plenty of books written on this. You can go in our bookstore and find lots of good references, but that's a thumbnail of my own work on the book, and I think that can be helpful, maybe, perhaps. Favorite things. Here's a favorite thing, which is really not a favorite thing, but a helpful thing to know that it happens. Christ gives report cards to churches. He has a view. Look at these phrases here. Revelation 2.4, this is to the church of Ephesus. But I have this against you. After saying a lot of good things, now I got this against you. 
Chapter, four, chapter 2, verse 14, the church to per, in Pergamum. Hey, I have a few things against you. Chapter 2, verse 20, church to Thy, of Thyatira. But I have this against you. Okay, I don't know how I can do any kind of tap dancing around this. Christ looks at a church and goes, I got this against you. I got these things against you. I got this against you. I was asked at uh, the PM and the PM this week in the men's Bible study to clarify a little bit of what I said here at Compass Night about that thing I was talking about as it related to Tullian Tavigian and this aggressive sanctification thing. I just thought I'd give you the last couple paragraphs of the book and show you a bit of what this was all about. And I told you this. It's, I told you this at the men's study this week, and I told you this last week. It's a conflating of sanctification and justification. The justification is that Christ has done everything to save me. I come to Christ at the end of my life as a criminal on a cross, and I'm 100% qualified to step into eternity as a favored child of God. Sanctification, I live my Christian life, and that Christian life then, God is judging me. He's making evaluations about me. He has opinions. He might say, I have this for you. It's great. I have this against you. He's got commendation and he's got rebuke. Here's the end of the book. This may be too small, but I just clipped it from my uh, Kindle. Look at this paragraph that starts with the highlight. Here's what Tullian says at the end of his book. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. This is how the book ends. That's, and he just tells a story about getting A's and he tells this cute story about it. Then he says, that's how God deals with us. Because of Christ's finish. And by the way, the whole book is about sanctification. It's all about sanctification. Not about justification, about sanctification. Because of Christ's finished works, Christians already have an A. We've got an A with God because it's this illustration about grading. The threat of failure judgment, condemnation have been removed. And this is the problem with the book all the way through it. I I agree with condemnation and judgment. I don't agree with the word failure though. I can be a Christian failure this week. I can show you the church of Laodicea filled with Christian failures. He says, we're in forever. Oh, I believe that. We are in forever. I get it. This is the frustrating thing about reviewing this book is he's just, everything is confused. The whole thrust of the book is about sanctification. But these are terms he's using in justification. He says, nothing we do will make our grade better. Hmm. Let me think that through for a second. Nothing we do will make our grade. If you're talking about being fully qualified to be in the presence of God, you're right. Nothing. But your book's not been about that. Your book has been about how I live the Christian life and whether or not God is pleased with my Christian life. And he'll say, you can't please God more than you please him right now. Why? Because everyone's got an A. There's nothing you can do to make your grade better. And there's nothing we can do to make our grade worse. I'm saying, man, read, read 1 Corinthians 3. Hey, read the first chapters 2 and 3 of the book of Revelation. In this life, by his death, with his resurrection, Christ our substitute secured for us the everything, the A. We come into the world longing for and incapable of securing for ourselves. So what I really want, I got in Christ. Man, that sounds great. And I get it. And I understand that as it relates to my justification. All the pardon. Believe that. All the approval. Don't believe that. Do you see what he's doing here in this book? And again, you've got to get your hands in this to see the mess that it creates in people's thinking. But this is the frustrating thing about this book. The purpose, freedom, the rescue, the meaning, the righteousness, the cleansing, the significance, the worth, the affection we crave we are, and we need already is ours in Christ. Now, there's some things about that that are true. There's some things about that that are incredibly misleading. We don't need to add anything to it. Well, I think all the churches I just talked about, Thyatira, Pergamum, Ephesus, Laodicea, they're going to say, yeah, there's some things we need to do. There's some things we need to change. The operative power that makes you a Christian, justification, is the same operative power that keeps you a Christian. Now, I believe keeps you a Christian. I get that. The unconditional, unqualified, undeserved, unrestrained grace of God in the completed work of Christ. Again, you've conflated so many things even in that sentence. This is the messy, bad theology that was just taking root even in our church. 
that had to be addressed. As I said, the banner under which Christians live reads, as I said, the banner under which Christians live reads, it is finished. I believe that in justification completely. So here's the sanctification call now. If you can read this word, relax and rejoice. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Everything minus Jesus equals nothing. You're free. Now, again, it is a terrible conflation of justification and sanctification to say what you said, even in that mess of, of, of two or three paragraphs. It's a mess, right? And I'm going to say, let's clarify, as J.C. Ryle so carefully did, the two of these things, and then let's make it very clear. I'm fully qualified in Christ to live with God eternally. But as I live my Christian life, we don't all have A's. We don't all have A's. And if there's anything I get from the book of Revelation is God has an opinion of your Christian life right now. He has an opinion of our church. And he's not going, A, that's all I see, A. I hope we're getting an A. I'd shoot for a B plus. I want at least a B. But I know this, depending on how you live, how I live, how we're fighting temptation, how we're dealing with our Christian lives, how we're managing through the issues that God gives us, God's got an opinion of that. And that may be more than we need. And it's not a raging fire the way it has been in the past. But since I was asked to clarify that, I think others might have the same question. So there's a little bit of one of my favorite things about the book is that we need to really consider the fact that God has an opinion about our Christian life. And we should please him, as Paul said to the Thessalonians. We should seek to please him and more and more. That means I can please him more. And we dealt with that as we went through the book of 1 Thessalonians. All right, another favorite thing in the book of Revelation is the importance of the Old Testament. There are 249 references to the Old Testament. There's up to, depending on the count, 550 allusions to the Old Testament. 28 of the 39 books of the Old Testament are referenced in some way in the book of Revelation. Of the 404 verses that I said we have in the Greek New Testament in the book of Revelation, 278 allude to the Old Testament in some way. That's 68% of the book. That's why if you go to Bible school or CBI, when you study, when you study the book of Revelation, it's often in conjunction with the Old Testament. Matter of fact, most of our courses, I had to take it twice, both in undergrad and graduate school, is a Daniel Revelation class. I mean, at least we got to deal with those two books together because so much of what we're dealing with is the same stuff. You cannot understand the book of Revelation unless you know the Old Testament. Now, again, this is for a different reason, but these are the headlines we have today coming across our news feeds. With Andy Stanley, for instance, making a fool of himself with this statement, Christians need to unhitch the Old Testament from their faith. And, and he, gets, he got some pushback for it. Oh, yay, we're still orthodox enough to know that's a dumb statement. I'm so proud of modern evangelicalism. But it's a dumb statement. Not to mention that a book like this cannot be unhitched from the Old Testament. Now, Andy's doing this for a whole different reason. His reason, in part, is and you watch how this is going to go. I'm not a prophet, not the son of a prophet, but here's what's going to happen. We want to unhitch from the Old Testament because we don't want those clear statements about sexual ethics to apply to our culture. And if we can tuck it under Jesus loves you and all's good, and I never saw him deal with homosexuality or any of that stuff or gender issues, then that'll be great. Well, he did deal with that. You're not reading carefully. Nevertheless, you can't unhitch the Bible from the Old Testament. And if there's ever a book that proves it, man, it's the book of Revelation. The whole thing is meshed together. So anyway, different reason, but this is not, you know, he's not the only one saying this kind of thing, but we're lost without the Old Testament as the foundational understanding of the New Testament. The presentation of the, of, of the glorified Christ. I've said this before. I even referenced it earlier tonight, and that is that John that knew him so well sees him now with a glorified personage He's got seven stars, his mouth, sharp two-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in full strength. I saw him, John says, I fell at his feet as though dead. Now, this is the guy you're hanging out with and having dinner with. Yeah, but now I'm frightened. And he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not, I'm the first and the last. I am completely different than what you knew me as in my humbled state in my earthly ministry, the glorified Christ. You want to picture Christ? Picture him like this. 
because he's no longer in that humbled state, if you will. He's now glorified, as he said in John 17, after the cross, he would be. Favorite thing number four, the transcendence of the divine. A.W. Tozer, and of course, we recommend it around here. A lot of you read it. I know you enjoy it. You should read it every few years. The Knowledge of the Holy. I know Tozer can be a bit of a mystic, but that Chicago, suburban Chicago pastor really nailed something in the modern church when he said that our low view of God entertained, he said, almost universally among Christians is the, among Christians is the cause of a hundred lesser evils among us. And the problem is, if we don't have a high view of God, we're in big, big trouble when it comes to every other thing in our Christian life. So I think reading Revelation 4 and 5, which again, I just put a representative verse up, and I thought, okay, well, let's just jump into verse 8. To think about God, not as a grandfather on a rocking chair and something that fits nicely in some compartment of my mind, but something that is so mind-blowing that I can't even understand the angels that surround it. The four living creatures, having six wings, full of eyes, around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was, who is, and who is to come. Even if you just dealt with that last phrase, the eternal God, who was, always was, who is, is, of course, and is to come, always will be. I mean, you got a mind-blowing concept right there. I mean, we're trying to, you're struggling with creation. Struggle for a while with the eternality of God. But then you look at this and you think, wow, what are these creatures? I don't know. I, I remember an assignment, and I've said this many times, but I had an assignment in Bible school to draw a picture of Revelation 4 and 5. And I remember getting that assignment and thinking, I'm pretty good at drawing. I'm not that good, but I you know, was young and, and, and foolish. And I thought I was better than most, I thought. And, and I probably, I still am perhaps better than you, but I'm not that good. But I felt good about the assignment. I thought, oh, yeah, I can do this. And the whole point of that professor giving us a stupid, childish assignment of drawing Revelation 4 and 5 was a great thing because it made you go verse by verse and go, you can't draw this. This is crazy. This is bizarre. Go on Google Images and, and try and find pictures of Revelation 4 and, 4 and 5. It's just, it's mind-boggling. And that's the point. Transcendence. It's otherworldly. There's something mind-boggling. You should, as Tozer says, have in your mind no compartmentalized or, or reductionistic view of God. And, and I just think Revelation 4 and 5 helps. If you're ever getting kind of in this mode that you've seen God in your prayer life as some fatherly figure and he's just kind of getting normal and you've brought him down to your level, just spend some time in Revelation 4 and 5 and it'll help you see the transcendence of the divine. Number five, the objective perspectives on justice. Usually I do these chronologically, but I took this one and flipped it. So I'm going to go back in the text of Revelation in a minute. But let's go to chapter 16 in our minds, verses 6 and 7. As the angels pour out in these bold judgments, the judgments of God, they say this, they have shed the blood of the saints and prophets and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the voice from the altar saying, yes, the Lord God, the almighty, true and just are your judgments. I've often said, I don't think there's going to be anybody shaking their fist in hell at God. I know a lot of pastors don't agree with me on that, but I think there's something about even in Jesus's parable of the rich man and Lazarus, when the rich man is down in his place of the beginning stage of his punishment, he's not saying, I need to get out of here. He's not saying what someone would say if you visited them in the county jail here. He's saying, I just don't want my brothers to come here. He knows he deserves to be there. And all I'm saying is heaven's perspective on justice is a lot different than our perspective on justice. And I just think if we can get outside of ourselves, everyone wants to say, why is there all this evil in the world? Why all these bad things happen to good people? We don't understand even what we're saying when we say those things. God's perspective on justice is very different. And when the angels say this, I think it's just one of the hints that when we talk about God judging the world, I think we're all going to be amazed that he doesn't judge it more harshly or sooner or more completely than he does. The grace of God will be the amazing thing, not the judgment of God. And everyone right now thinks the amazing thing is that God would judge anybody. How can God judge anyone? Amazing thing is that why God would not judge anyone. 
All right. Number six, the reminder that it's not here yet. I guess I should put it's in quotes as well. And that, by that, I mean, it's, this is reminiscent of 1 Corinthians 15 when Paul said, if we've hoped in Christ in this life only, you ought to pity us more than all men. And I quote this reference a lot. You hear me squeeze it in sermons all the time. But Revelation chapter 11, verses 17 and 18. We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. Now, in that context, it's a futuristic context, I believe, as God is now starting to initiate and inaugurate the kingdom. At least that's the foretaste there. And we're ready for that. Christ's kingdom is coming. He's going to take this, the kingdoms of the world and they're going to become the kingdom of our Lord God and of his Christ Jesus. That's going to happen. The nations raged. Your wrath has come. The time for the dead to be judged and the rewarding of your saints, both small and great. So we're going to come to the end of this and now you finally will exercise your power. Some people think Christianity is like Christ is exercising his power now. And as I illustrated even this last Sunday, I think it was, it's like David being anointed the king, but he's not yet enthroned as the king. Or maybe that was it, something else I was doing. But the point is, he hasn't taken his great power and begun to reign yet. We're not there yet. This is not all there is. If this is all there is, Paul said, you ought to really feel bad for us. But we're on the right team. We're on the right side of history. It's just that history hasn't been culminated yet. Number seven, the reminder that sin is cowardly. It always strikes me when I read this passage. Revelation 21.8, but as for the cowardly, and then it goes from there, the faithless, detestable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and on it goes. They're going to have their punishment in that lake that burns with fire, the second death. It starts with the cowardly. If I'm going to make a list of people that are going to go to hell, I'm gonna, I just don't think I would come up with that word unless, of course, I understand things properly. And to understand things pop- properly is the insight that sin is a cowardly act. It takes no boldness or courage to go along with the crowd. You understand that. Most of the New Testament is reminding us of that. It takes boldness and courage to stand with Christ and to do the right thing and to trust him. The cowardly are the sinners. Easy to sin. I don't know. I love that insight. It makes me pause every time I read chapter 21. And then, of course, the encouragement to hang on. I mean, the whole book is given to us not to say, here's what's going to happen to you. Here's what's going to happen to the world. But you need to know God's in charge. Hang on. Here's how the book ends. Behold, I'm coming soon, Christ said. I'm bringing my recompense, my payment, my reward. The things that people deserve, I'm bringing that. I'm bringing it with me to repay each one for what he's done. I'm the beginning, I'm the end. The alpha, the omega, the first, the last, the beginning, and the end. Hang on, hang on, hang on. The whole point, really, ultimately, the book of Revelation is the encouragement we derive from the fact that this isn't it. Christ is coming. This isn't all there is. Stop trying to be, like, fully satisfied here. I still want to pray intuitive prayers, as I said. I I want to pray for good things, but I know this. This world's not our home. Hang on. Christ is on the throne. He's coming back. Don't give up. He's the beginning. He set it up. It was good then. Sin was in the middle. He's the end. Just stop thinking it's about the here and now. Aliens and strangers, we're headed to the kingdom. Don't give up. Be encouraged. Hang on. And that's the 27 books of the New Testament right there. Let's pray. God, thanks for this semester. Thanks for Compass Night. Thanks for this crowd, the people that love your word have come out. I know there's many others that listen online and there's many that are in other ministries and they listen later and that's great. But we're thankful that we can study together. We're thankful that we can get into your word. We're grateful that we can even have your blessing and being able to space it all and time it all out so that we can uh, we can get through all of it. And that was great. Thank you, God. Thank you for this group. I love our church. I love my church. I love these people. I pray that you bless them and encourage them. May you motivate them to get into the word. Thanks for letting us study it a little bit for the last 13 weeks. In Jesus' name, amen.